Welcome back to Capitalize Your Fridays. This is Michael Williams. I'm your co-host for this podcast. I'm also the president and founder of Altius Financial, and I'm joined by the creator of this podcast, my co-host, Taylor Dennis. Hi, everyone. It's Taylor Dennis. I'm the Senior Wealth Design Specialist and Vice President of Altius Financial, and I'm excited to be in Denver recording, and happy spring. Happy spring, that's right. it's spring? (laughs) It's actually spring right now. Yeah, I think it was either today or yesterday. So um, for those of you listening, we recorded this a couple days prior, but this week is spring week. Actually, the week of spring. That's fantastic. You know, it's amazing how many people in Denver have been complaining, and maybe myself included, (laughs) about, you know, when is spring coming? I mean, I didn't realize, to me, it kind of feels like it just kind of caught up, and here we are, uh, March, and it's March Madness, right? Are you a basketball fan? Not I'll really. take that as a note. I hate to say it. <laughs> I, I can be a tag along for things. So if Dave's really excited about a game, I'll I'll tune in with it. So you might get caught up in the magic of the moment. I mean, the thing yeah. is that it's interesting because I'm less of a college basketball fan than I used to be. My first big screen TV that I ever bought. Yeah. I remember when I could afford to buy a decent sized TV. I bought it like, you know, a week before March Madness. <laughs> I, oh, really? <laughs> and I took took a few days where I was just watching basketball full time. Uh, it's a great, uh, I mean, they've done a great job of promoting it, you know, from a yeah. from a advertising and uh, just a, that time of the year. And it's always a great event. I mean, it's amazing how you have these close games and you have such incredible athleticism and you have these big giant killer upsets, you know, you have these, yeah. these, uh, colleges that no one's ever even heard of <laughs> beating the number one seed or whatever. And it seems like that happens a lot, but it seems like it's happened even more this year. So it's been exciting to me. Yeah, this year was interesting because I think they said it was like the first year in like 50 years or something crazy that the top seat was knocked out by the bottom seat. Yeah. And I I don't know anyone who watched that game who didn't say, hey, what is that? Like, what is this? What was it? Fair something? I can't remember, I can't remember the name of Fair. <laughs> they won. Fair I hate to say that. Like Fair Valley or it what was, is, I had to Google the the school. I'd never heard of them. Um, they're out in New Jersey. I know that because I Googled. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, should, we should be able to know that, right? And I know that <laughs> the reporter on the TV kept saying, oh my gosh, this is amazing. They're the shortest team in the entire league. And I guess they've got the shortest players. I'm sure they're all still like giants compared to um, you and I. But yeah, so I thought that was just, it was funny that they can have such a, a big moment. And it's a great time of the year. Yeah. Spring, spring's happening. Spring Although, is happening. Although I know a lot of people who complain about the time change. And that's been yeah. now been a, a week or two, right? That's been a week or two. Old. Does that get you thrown off? Yeah. Really? <laughs> I, it's weird. I like that they do it on the weekend because I kind of need that um, because I'll wake up and I'll be thinking, oh gosh, like I overslept or I underslept or gosh, what's happening? And then I look at my clock and I go, oh, I think the time changed. And you walk into the kitchen and it's wrong and you go, yeah, the time must have changed last night. So is it usually a day or two or does it wipe you out for the whole week and change your whole circadian rhythm sleep schedule? It doesn't wipe me out for a week or something, but it... I definitely find myself going, oh, like, why am I struggling to wake up early today? And I go, oh, well, it's because it's 6 a.m., not 7 a.m., mm. or it's 5 a.m., not 6. I don't know anyone who says that they like this yeah. changing. They, I know, I mean, everybody I know says, and some people stronger than others, but I know people are like, 
just leave it, right? Just go to daylight savings time full time. Just leave it yeah. alone. Pick a time and stick to it. I mean, it seems like that they could do that, right? Because that that there's a lot of uh, divisiveness on lots of issues in the world, but it seems like most everybody agrees. Just <laughs> leave, just leave, leave, leave it. Leave it at a good thing. I think doesn't New Mexico do? There's there are a couple one states. State. There are a couple there are states. A couple. I don't think Arizona. I think Arizona, oh, Arizona. Uh, yeah. leaves it. But uh, so, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so <laughs> let's jump back to today's actual topic. Um, it was funny because when I first started writing this podcast script, I was thinking, oh, it's almost tax time. Maybe we'll talk about taxes. And then I quickly turned to, no, banking is chaos right now. We should probably talk about banking. <laughs> There's, taxes are boring and banking is usually boring, but not right now. So <laughs> my thought is it's just been a crazy month. And so I want to make sure we're we're kind of telling people well, what do I even need to know? Like, should I be pulling my money out of the bank? What what should I be doing? Um, but Mike, do you want to start off with our disclaimer? Absolutely. I'll do the disclaimer here. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of investment advice or financial planning. No client advisor relationship is formed by our broadcasting this information or your listening to it. The use of this information or any materials linked to in this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant as a substitute for professional financial advice. If you're needing specific advice for your situation, please reach out to your certified financial planner, or if you're interested in learning more about our firm, our people, or our philosophy, please reach out to us at our website, altiusfinancial.com, or you can reach us directly by email at michael at altiusfinancial.com or taylor at altiusfinancial.com. So Mike, let's start with SVB. Silicon Valley Bank. So many of our listeners have been wondering what's going on and if they need to have a concern about their current banking and investments. What what do you want to share about this current situation? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you uh, kind of shifted gears here and, and made this the topic for today. I mean, obviously, we could do some tax time of the year, but that's, you know, most, most people know what they got to do as far as getting their taxes done. And, and we provide lots of information on our website and other communication methods. And we uh, we recently released an, an interim monthly newsletter about this whole banking crisis. And we've been on a pretty good roll, I think, about doing a monthly newsletter. And then, lo and behold, this thing happens. And I thought it was worthwhile at least putting something out. So so we had a, a, an interim monthly newsletter that we covered a little bit about this banking crisis, but I think it's worthwhile. It's getting wide coverage, but I think our clients and listeners probably wouldn't mind hearing you know, a little bit of a perspective from us on it. Again, it's been big news, uh, uh, a number of significant bank failures. And so in that interim newsletter, I talked about the liquidity crisis that was beginning to build up in the economy. I talked about that actually uh, a couple of months ago as well. And it's interesting that we've had interest rate hikes, big interest rate hikes over the last year. Everyone's heard about this. And, and the Fed... Also, the Federal Reserve also, aside from raising interest rates rapidly, has been beginning to drain liquidity out of the economy. And so it's the exact opposite of what they were doing uh, a couple of years ago. And, and this is all in the name of fighting inflation. Uh, and in my mind, you know, inflation that was caused by the Federal Reserve. Um, you know, the Fed had been flooding money into the economy, um, pr- you know, lots of new money out of thin air. Um, that now they've had to reverse themselves, creating lots of uh, extra money in the economy without actual new products and services and goods 
new wealth uh, is going to cause inflation. That's, I believe, a, a pretty uh, straightforward cause and effect relationship. Um, and now they've said, well, we've got to reverse this inflation. We've got to have prices calm down. And so they're trying to drain money out of the economy and with the interest rate hikes. And then we had this, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, Friday, Friday, uh, the 10th of March, we saw the largest banking failure in the U.S. since since uh, the financial crisis in 2008. And this is actually the second largest bank failure ever in the U.S. Uh, you know, it was a, a two-day run on their deposits, the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and the regulators took control of it. And okay, closed, closed I, I don't want to interrupt your flow. It sounds like you're going good. <laughs> I was on a roll. <laughs> I know you're on a roll. But I do think um, you use the word bank run, and I think that word has been thrown around like crazy lately. But I don't think everyone knows what that means. Do you want to explain that, or do you want me to dive into um, before you kind of continue? No, go ahead. I think that would be good for you to, to tell our listeners what a bank run is. Yeah, so for our listeners who are already well-versed in financial terminology, this might just be a good reminder or maybe just take a minute to open a drink or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's um, good advice. <laughs> start but, drinking. When you think about bank failures and bank <laughs> runs, our advice is to start drinking heavily. <laughs> well, just I was kidding. looking over at my Sprite and thinking, oh, go, go get a sip of water or something. But yeah, you know, whatever floats your boat. So a bank run is when a large number of bank customers come and just withdraw all their money. And that creates an issue because, so banks are required to hold on a specific amount of deposits from their customers. So when you take your money to the bank and you say, hey, I'm giving you $100 or $100,000, however much you give them, they're required to hold on to a specific amount of that deposit um, for, for in case you come back the next day and say, you know what? I need $5 back. I need some of it back to spend thing, spend on things. Now, the risk is, obviously, if they're only holding a percentage of your money, they're only holding a percentage of Mike's money, a percentage of Crescent's money, your neighbor down the street only got a chunk of their money, everything else they've turned around and they're, they're trying to invest as well. They want to get a profit. So they're not holding on to all of your money in cash. They're not holding on to all of anyone's money in cash. So if all of a sudden... A large group of people or all of the people decide to say, you know, I need my money back. I want it right now. That creates an issue. So, and that is essentially what's, what a bank run is called. Yeah, so that's a good explanation. Uh, you mentioned required. Yeah. That banks are required to keep a certain, certain amount of their deposits on hand. And that begs the question, required by who? The government. Um, is it the Fed? The Federal Fed, Reserve yeah. and the government have passed laws that say banks have to, you know, they, they have to have a reserve requirement is what it's called. Um, but I, I think that the, that is one point. And again, you're going to have to stop me on this a bunch of times. <laughs> I'll interrupt you. I'll, I'll get on a lot of rolls here and we'll be here all night. Uh, yeah. Rabbit holes will, will be occurring left and right to me and I'll be diving down into them. <laughs> and you got to stop me. But yeah, th that is worthwhile talking about uh, fractional reserve banking. Um that terminology gets thrown around uh, and and talked about, but that that is the the essence of banking as a business model. Um, it's it's this idea of asymmetry of needs. You know, person a person who deposits their money in a bank doesn't need it all at once. Yeah. So they're fine saying, okay, store my money, and I know you're not going to have it all there at once. You're going to loan some up, but whenever I come in, I want my money. Yeah. Um, and even. Even if the government didn't say, look, you've got to keep a certain amount on reserve, 
what would a rational banker do anyway? Yeah, they would keep some money because they they know that eventually someone's going to have to come back and pull money out for it. Right, so it's it's both, I mean, it's definitely a legal requirement now, but it's also a rational business practice for a bank to say, I want to make sure that my customers don't get angry with me when they can't get money out of the bank. So I got to keep a certain amount on hand. And that's a, a sophisticated judgment that a banker, a good banker has to make in terms of how much do I keep on, on hand. I won't go too much further than that, but you're right. That was, it was a, a classic bank run case. Um, but there's some unique parts of this particular bank runs uh, with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other banks that are out there. As one might imagine, Silicon Valley, what does that mean to most people? S- Silicon Valley is sort of like the the cradle of technology innovation in America right now. Yeah. Uh, people think about Silicon Valley and they think about technology. And lo and behold, a lot of the companies and individuals who are in Silicon Valley and who are banking with Silicon Valley Bank are in the tech industry. And, you know, the, it's one of those things where that's a certain, you know, a certain kind of customer that has certain kind of needs. And those needs actually became exaggerated in, real, in a real sense over the last couple of years. Um, again, it, you know, if those, if those companies who are in the tech industry all of a sudden needed to hold, you know, be depositing a certain amount in, in the bank, but then had to begin pulling it out faster than, than they otherwise would have, that's what creates that run on the bank. And it's a snowball effect. Now, most banks, again, follow the reserve requirements, and that means investing, keeping a lot of cash on hand, but then also investing in what are called uh, safe investments, right? Short-term yeah. treasury bills, treasury bonds. They're actually required to be invested in what I would call a, quote, low risk. And I don't mean to... To say that uh, government bonds are not low risk, they they traditionally have been. The Treasury securities are are considered worldwide to be the the yeah. really safe haven for for people want to make sure that they can get their money back. But they also have a term. They also have a certain time period that you you know you're buying a Treasury bill or bond for a certain amount of time, and that's the key is you know being able to match those. Uh, terms of the investments that you have against the potential need of, of your depositors. And not to do another interrupt, but I'm, I'm going to do a quick little mansplain, as you might say. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the reason you want to match your term of your bond to when you need that money back is because in a traditional bond, if you're investing and you're saying, okay, I'm going to buy this government bond, I'm going to hold it to its term, then how that works for you is... The government will say, I will pay you X percent. So you're going to get X percent. And at the end of your term, you get the money back, your original principal. So the money you put in, you get that back. Now, the challenge is if you're halfway through your term and you go, I need some money. I need to pull it out right now. I don't care that my term is 10 more years down the road. I need it today and I'm going to get it. Then you're stressed with the issue of, well, what is the current market value of my bond? And so if we're in, as we are right now, a rising interest rate environment, and let's say you locked in on a wonderful 3% bond, and now we're in a wonderful 6% bond type environment, no one's going to want to pay you full price to get a bond that's paying less than market rates. No one's going to say, you know what, I I don't need that 6% bond, I'll take the 3, just give me the 3 for full price. No, a a logical investor is going to turn around and say, sure, I'll buy your bond, but I'll get it at a discount. Instead of buying it for maybe the 1,000 that you put in, I'll give you maybe 600. So 
you as the initial investor are saying, well, gosh, I didn't get my thousand out. I only got the 600. That's a $400 loss. So that is kind of the, the story in a small version of why you need to make sure you're timing your bonds right, um, why this can be an issue when you're needing your liquidity. Yeah, I think that's a really good explanation of almost an ironclad law of investing. And that's when interest rates go up, then bond values go down and vice versa, right? If, yep. if you have a low interest rate environment, interest rates are continually dropping, then existing bonds do well. They appreciate in value. And that is, again, like you said, that's the key to, to be able to match durations. And in, in one sense, it's, it's no different than what we do for clients. We say, okay, if you're not going to retire for 30 years yeah. and we know we can take the volatility of the market and we know we're not going to have to you know, take money out of your retirement account for buying a car or something more interim, some medium-term goal, then you know, no problem. You can hold to maturity, so to speak, even though a lot of times it won't be necessarily a fixed asset that we're investing in. But what we're trying to do is match up our duration risk to our goal risk. You know, if we've got a long-term goal, then we're okay uh, investing for the long-term. But that's the difficulty of, uh, of having a bank like this, um, especially when you go from a very low interest rate environment that we've had for a long time. And I would call it an artificially low interest rate environment. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, yanking uh, the rug out from underneath people and saying we're going to, because we were wrong in inflation, uh, because they had this term, you know, transit, inflation is trans, transitory. transitory. Don't worry. We got this <laughs> under control. Oh, no, <laughs> we don't. We got to raise interest rates very rapidly. Uh, that yeah. causes some real dysfunction in the markets and certainly in the banking environment. And it's interesting because most banks uh, are really fairly healthy, especially given the last financial crisis in 2008 that was caused more because of real estate uh, being underwater and home mortgages being defaulted on. Um, there's a lot more to it than that, but that was essentially the, the nature of that crisis. Now we have the crises of inflation. And these banks, that, uh, especially Silicon Valley Bank, that the depositors, again, are in the tech industry. And so they had sort of a double whammy on the positive because as most people are aware, we went through this whole COVID pandemic where what was an industry that was doing well during COVID? Yeah. You know, the government said, oh, certain businesses have to shut down. Certain businesses have to close their doors or have limited interaction because of, for health reasons and so forth. And I'm not going to, you know, debate right now the government's actions about COVID, but just factually, there were certain businesses that didn't do well and certain businesses, namely the technology industry, that really was booming because we all needed to be on Zoom, I should say, or, or needed to have you know, work from home accommodations. And that involved technology. We were shopping at home. We were being entertained at home. Yeah. So the technology industry really took off and did well. And there was a lot of capital that was flowing toward that, yeah. which means that those early stage companies that were just starting in technology were getting attracting lots of money and saying, okay, well, we've got money and we have to put it in the bank. You know, we're, we're going to be uh, attracting money from, from venture capital and then we'll put it in the bank. Well, we'll put it in the Silicon Valley Bank. And one of the problems is they were getting so much money thrown at them, they were depositing money well beyond the FDIC limits. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if you want to go into F FDIC and the limits that they have there. Yeah, so FDIC is Federal Deposit Insurance Company. Federal yeah, that's, that's what it stands for. I, I, I take issue with it being insurance. I mean, again, this is yeah. maybe a rant or a rabbit hole I could go down because I, don't, I wouldn't call it true insurance at all, um, but that's what they call it. So that's what they call it. And essentially the way it works is you are covered 
on your deposits into a bank as long as those deposits are within the 250000 limit. So you can put in 250000 Once you hit that, the thought is for security purposes, if you don't trust that your bank's not going to fail, you maybe put the next two hundred fifty into another bank and then you go to another bank and, um, and so on and so forth. You're kind of diversifying your risk should one or all banks fail. Yeah. And as Mike pointed out earlier, it's pretty historically rare for banks to fail, especially as a whole. And so the question is, well, do I need this? I mean, it doesn't really matter, but if I'm over the 250, do I need to move all of my excess money over or should I be fine? In this case, the government essentially said, well, you know, all these people were over the 250 limit. They're going to be fine anyways. Oh, you had a little whoopsie. We'll just make an exception <laughs> <Whoopsie>. for you. <laughs> well, you had you had this case. And, and I actually want to dispute something. I mean, bank failures are not that uncommon. The, that they happen every year. There's a few to a number of banks that fail in this country. And that has been the case from the time immemorial, the banking industry. Um, the question is, what makes a healthy banking environment? But people need to realize that banks are like any other business. They have a business model, and they are either well-managed according to that business model or not so well-managed. They either diversify well, and that's a whole other whole other rabbit hole because there are certain restrictions that, the, that our government has about whether they can diversify well enough. You know, we had, for most of the country's history, anti-branch banking rules, which means that a bank couldn't really diversify its assets well. They might have been, in this case, subject to the technology industry, but historically there were lots of banks that were really concentrated in farming or certain geographic areas or certain industries, and they couldn't really diversify well enough. So when you had sort of booms and busts in particular industries, they, they were safe. Um, and that causes problems when you can't diversify, when you can't like spread the risk. Yeah. But as you said, in this case, you had venture capital firms that provided lots of money to new startups that were banking with Silicon Valley Bank, and they were putting their entire money with this bank. And more often than not, it wasn't insured. It went way over the 250000 For most of our clients, yeah. 250000 is a fair chunk of money and they don't yeah. have to worry too much about spreading amongst you know multiple banks that does happen but but for most people for most individuals two hundred fifty thousand dollars in cash is a, a big chunk and yeah and they don't have to worry about it too much but if you're talking about a new startup firm that gets funding at 20 million dollars yeah and that 20 million dollars all goes to silicon valley bank two hundred fifty thousand of it's insured but the rest <laughs> is hanging there and yeah. And literally, uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank had over 90% of its deposits were not insured. They were well above that. And so our authorities uh, made the call. Uh, I think this was wrong. You know, if you talk to Jerome Powell or, or President Biden or, or Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Janet Yellen, they would say it was systemic risk. It was going to be a problem. If you let this bank fail, you'd have more contagion and more banks would begin to fail. And it would spread across the country and the whole... The whole financial system would be a risk. And so has that not happened though? Because it seems like we now there has been another bank that has had an issue, and then now we've got even across the globe we've got Credit Suisse having its issues. And is well, it, there were two or three that failed before Silicon Valley Bank okay. uh, that were you know, in similar kind of niche industries. You know, there, there's banks that, interestingly enough, were. Uh, funding some of the cryptocurrency innovation that's gone on and having having customers who were involved in that industry. Yeah. Well, when we had the different SB 
Yeah. <laughs> SBF versus F- S- SVB. Yeah. Um, you know, the whole cryptocurrency thing last fall, that has put more pressure on that industry and therefore any bank that specialized in those kinds of depositors or those kinds of businesses and some of those banks failed. So there has been some uh, spreading and this is bound to happen. Whenever you have, and again, I say it from two levels. One is banking is a business and, and some people are good at banking and some people are not so good at banking. Unfortunately, there's, there's, a, there's this idea in our culture and longstanding since the Great Depression, since Franklin Roosevelt started FDIC, this idea that, well, we have to t- protect depositors, at least that 250 level. Now, again, I don't know if you know what the original amount was back in uh, the 1930s. What was it? So it was $2,500. Oh, wow. So the initial FDIC guaranteed amount or insured quote amount from your bank was $2,500. And that's grown because of inflation, which again, I say the government and the Federal Reserve cause. (laughs) But because of that, they've had to raise the level each time. I think back in the 2008 uh, financial crisis, it was $100,000. But since then, they've raised it to 250. And now, well, it sounds like it's infinity, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, it doesn't matter if you have $20 million in our bank and yeah. only 250 is, well, we're going to insure it all, at least if yeah. you're in this, this uh, particular particular bank. Um, I think that's a huge mistake. Uh, now, your your question about, well, is there hasn't there been contagion? You're seeing more bank failures. Most people right now are making the observation, well, it seems relative, you know, in fact, today, you know, financial stocks were up and it seems like things are coming down some. I think that's maybe temporary, that there probably will be more problems, not just in banking, but across the business environment in the U.S. and across the globe. Uh, And it's because we have this unpredictable nature of what's going to happen to interest rates. Well, and so I know you don't know this, but what do you think is going to happen to interest rates? Aren't we expecting to hear from the Fed this week? Yeah, and I think think there's a decent chance. I think uh, Powell has got it uh, in his mind that inflation is a problem. And I think he's right. I mean, when you create trillions of dollars over the course of uh, a number, a few years, and and they certainly did that, yeah. uh, uh, you know, in response to COVID and, and, and in response to a number of crises, they're creating more liquidity, more money, and our economy is not keeping up with that in terms of actually wealth production right now. We're not really truly growing that way. So you don't need that much money in the economy. Otherwise, you're going to cause inflation. And so inflation is a real problem right now. And Powell knows it. Um, it's moderated some at both the consumer and uh, the producer price indexes have, have moderated a little bit, but they're still way over what they had been just just a, a year or two ago. And so he's he's determined, and he believes that interest rate hikes are really what is going to help solve inflation. I don't necessarily agree on that. I understand that's the thinking. You know, you got to slow down the economy, and if you slow down economic activity by make it harder to borrow, then you're, you're going you're gonna to put a brakes on the economy. And, and that's probably what will happen. I mean, you can actually have a, an economy that slows down or stops or reversed in terms of growth, which we call a recession, yeah. but still have inflation. You can still have prices going up because you have still too much money in the economy. Well, so from a consumer perspective, if the Fed continues raising rates, isn't this just going to kind of expedite the current situation with banking? Because you've already said, so banks, as we know, are required to hold a certain amount liquid. They're required to have a certain amount invested in these 
quote unquote safe securities, but we know that these safe securities from the government have historically paid lower returns. Now for raising interest rates and we're putting our economy in a situation where maybe banks, not banks, maybe companies aren't doing as well and consumers are more likely to need to pull their money out faster, but we know that we've already kind of cut one leg off the bank. So they're kind of in a crunch situation to get their money back should they need to give it to you. Is this going to kind of create a snowball effect and just blow everything up? <laughs> well, you're putting your finger on it. That we're screwed. I mean, I don't mean that literally, but it's very difficult for the Federal Reserve to solve the problem that they've yeah. created. I mean, they've, and many many observers have said this for the last several years, or really even decades, that the Federal Reserve, by its policy, by not following any kind of rule, by by having what they call discretionary policy of just saying, well, this is what the signals we're getting, and so we're going to we're gonna attack the, the economy this way. They attack the economy's problems, either inflation or too slow a growth this way by monkeying with interest rates. Rather than having markets determine what interest rates should be, um, you paint yourself into a corner. And uh, every time the, it looks like there's gonna be slower growth or some pain, yeah. You want to solve that pain by making money easier. But yeah. what you're doing, and this, many people have used the analogy before that this is like a drug addict. You know, you just keep giving them bigger doses of the same drug that they're taking and they feel yeah. better, but then they need more and then they need more. Yeah. And what you're doing is putting off that eventual crash, you know, in the case of a drug addict, uh, you know, truly a physical response that's it's extremely painful for someone to come off of a drug. Uh, you know, get unaddicted or, or dried out or whatever it might be, then it's similar to an economy that it's the longer you you put off the pain, the more painful the eventual reckoning will will cause. Okay. And that's the problem right now. Our Federal Reserve is having to choose between you know significant inflation, maybe growing uh, and worse inflation, or causing these bank crises. Yeah. And and causing potentially uh, a, a significant recession or even depression. Uh, and that's the, the kind of spot that they're in right now. So do all of our listeners need to turn down their volume, go hop in the car and grab their money out of the bank? <laughs> so I don't think it's necessary to uh, just pull your money out of the bank right now. I do think more people should be aware of what the nature of banking is and their relationship to our government is. I mean, banking now is basically nationalized and uh, it's not a free market in banking whatsoever, especially with this most recent Example. I mean, what will happen now? Will every single bank depositor out there be insured for whatever they have in the bank, or or will they only selectively say uh, these people had more than two fifty, but you know they they're not in Silicon Valley and they didn't have the special problems that Silicon Valley has had, so we're not going to cover them. I mean, this yeah. is really interesting because they're causing. I mean, people adjust their behavior. You know, that people yeah. are saying, okay, now what's the risk to me? And there are lots of people who are deciding to pull their money out of small and community banks that are perfectly healthy right now, yeah. but they're pulling their money out saying, well, it's only the bigger banks or the special banks, whoever the Federal Reserve and our government favor as too big to fail or too systemic to fail, that they're going to be protected. So I want to put my money with a big bank now. Yeah. Because I'll be more protected. And that's causing problems for local community banks that are really, in many ways, the pillars of their community. Um, in fact, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, I was going to mention this. There's a new ETF that was created just in the last couple of days. Oh, really? And uh, the symbol is B-I-G-B. <laughs> Guess- Big banks? <laughs> And all they're doing, the only thing that they'll invest in is the very top big banks because they believe that's a good business model because 
of their special nature or relationship or recognition from our government that says they're, quote, too big to fail. And as I've been saying, I mean, anybody who's listened to me, not you know, on this podcast lately, but for the last 20 or 30 years, I think that's, it creates massive moral hazard, and people don't realize that. But again, I'm, I'm, I believe that we should get rid of the entire FDIC system because people don't think about the risks. Yeah, they assume their bank is just safe off the bat because, hey, the government says I'm insured. It'll be fine. Right, and in, in a real sense, the, the government wants to hide from us the weak banks versus the, the good banks. And so it blurs the, the actual, the people who deserve our, our deposits and our admiration uh, because they're virtuous and they run their business well yeah. versus the people who are taking too much risk. Yeah. Um, it's very frustrating to watch. But again, I'm singing an old tune that I've been saying for years. And I think maybe it's a silver lining with, would be for more people to understand the banking system and the relationship that it has with our government right now. Yeah, it's interesting. We have a quote that's one of our four Altius quotes. And let me know if I butcher this, but I believe it was Mark Twain. And history doesn't always repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. Did yeah, I get that's, that right? Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like it's rhyming. Like, are we having an 08 flashback or something? Well, what's amazing is, you know, uh, anybody who's been around the block a few times recognizes the fact that we have banking crises seemingly every 10 years or so. Yeah. But is that metaphysical? Is that necessary? Do we have to? I mean, in one sense, I I think people should realize that there is sort of a natural business cycle. And I kind of attribute that to the original businesses out there were agricultural. And certainly anyone who's in agriculture, you know, knows their seasonality, right? You have yeah. the winter, we, we were talking about spring. Well, you have spring and you, you plant and you, and then you, you know, you nurture your crops and then you harvest in the fall. And then you, you know, you have a winter time period and you have to, you have to be able to manage. Uh, certainly if you're in the farming and ranching business, you have to manage that because it's a reality. You've got the weather and you have the, the seasonality, but, but businesses themselves has, have some cyclicality to them. Yeah. But I don't think it's necessary for us to go through these massive crises. But I, again, I blame the intrusion in the marketplace because we don't have market prices. Even you know, in this banking crisis, we don't have bankers really making decisions. Now, there was a lot being made, and this is, gets politicized all the time. There's a lot of people on the right who are saying, oh, Silicon Valley, it's the big tech, those liberal people out there, you know, they're, they're doing their ESG thing and they're not paying attention to the fundamentals of banking. And there's some truth in that. There's actually some real truth in that, in my view. But, but if you flipped it and you said, and this has happened before, if you flipped it and said, well, no, it's farm banks, you know, what would the people on the left be saying? Oh, those farmers, we don't need to worry about them. <laughs> they and the people on the right doing. would be going, no, we got to save the family farmer. Those banks are the backbone of America and we got to save them. So it's politicized. Yeah. Um, I at least am consistent in saying that you know, we, shouldn't save be, any of them. <laughs> we shouldn't be saving any of them. People need to realize there's risk in anything you go into. Any, any yeah. investment that you go into, any bank that you go into, any relationship that you go into, there's risk. And you have to make judgments. You have to actually be able to judge and evaluate and use your mind and think independently about what is that risk. Is it acceptable risk for you? So from a listener perspective... I was one of those people, and I'm okay to say I have banked at Wells Fargo Bank for multiple years, most of my years, and I kind of was one of those people that, well, and I don't have over 250000 in my account at the moment, so not a full issue, but my thought was, I'm comfortable with this bank. It seems fine. Should I be looking, should someone who doesn't have that much in liquidity in their checking account still be looking to diversify banks, or should they be saying, 
ah, uh, you know, it's okay because I know I have FDIC and I'm within that limit. Like at what point should you start diversifying your exposure to any given bank? Well, you know, th- that's another point is that sometimes people don't understand why they're holding on to cash in the first place. You know, yeah. how much, what should their bank account? In fact, I've had a number of clients over the last uh, number of years ask me um, when I talk about, you know, the quote, the sort of Boy Scout rule, be prepared, right? You know, how do I be prepared with regard to even just the cash I have on on hand? I yeah. mean, and that's a personal decision. We have lots of sort of rules of thumb that we use to say, well, given your situation, given your net worth, given, given your stage of life, given your dependence, given your interests, here's how much you should maybe actually have literally cash on hand, not at the bank, but literally cash in your home or whatever it might be. And then each step beyond that, okay, well, how much should I have in my checking account? How much should I have in my savings account? How much should I have in money market accounts? And then stretching out the risk level and the duration of, well, this is really long-term. How much should I have in in you know Bitcoin? Or yeah, how much should whatever. I have in something really speculative? You know, yeah. you know we're going to talk uh, later this month about some alternative investments. How much yeah. should I have in wine futures wine or something or like that? Or, you know, yeah. But but that's a highly personal thing dependent upon a person's circumstance. And I wouldn't say there's necessarily a perfect rule for anyone. I don't think people should panic and necessarily be pulling money out of their banks unless they have large deposits or they have you know particular concerns about their bank. And, and you know one of the reasons why FDIC came along. I mean, again, I think this was there's some some not so good reasons, um, and I would get rid of it. But the reason why it came along in the Great Depression was the thinking was, well, we have a more sophisticated banking environment, and, there, and there's people who can't make the decision. Can't you know? I can't be an expert in banking, so uh, I'm a little guy. I should just be protected. And I think that's that's understandable and maybe even commendable from a uh, a social policy standpoint, but it's dead wrong. Um, and what I mean by that is in a highly sophisticated uh, economy like we have, most people aren't experts in anything, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't know about the, the full uh, extent of how someone makes your clothes or food or anything like that, right? Yeah. But you have trusted sources. You have people who have experience with this grocery store or this farmer or this shoemaker. And it's the same thing with regard to uh, banking. You can rely on uh, referrals and, and testimonials and people who are trusted sources. And certainly there are, there's a whole, there can be, this gets stifled, but there could be a whole industry of legitimate. We have bank rating agencies right now, but they're part of the government. They're, they're actually, they're very few in nature, you know, Moody's and there's a few of them out there, Fitch and so forth, but they're so regulated and they don't, they can't do anything innovation wise, but we could have a whole, um, a whole industry that was really healthy about evaluating our banks for us. And, and, you know, we could subscribe to, okay, I want someone who does really a deep dive on the local bank that I might go into. Are you pitching for a influencer for banking? <laughs> well, I think I think that's what would happen yeah. if you have if you have freedom of action and freedom of property. People, yeah. innovation happens. Yeah, we don't really have innovation that happens in the banking industry. There's been some innovation when they they might re- reduce the regulations on Wall Street a little bit, and and I could go into some historical examples of where that really did create. Uh, wonderful outcomes for the overall economy because there was innovation happening uh, in the investment industry. Um, certainly in, in technology and uh, brokerage fees, there's there's been some wonderful democratization, so to speak, of 
of the, the investing environment. More people can participate in investing now. But banking is so heavily regulated, but there, there's just not really a lot of innovation that's going on there. Uh, my, my main point is that people don't need to be experts, but that doesn't mean they need to rely on a forced system that stifles innovation and, and creates these, these uh, unnecessary cycles of inflation or boom and bust. Um, yeah. I think we could have a much healthier economy if we had less intrusion uh, you know, it's obvious that I'm, I'm yeah. not a fan of the Federal Reserve. I think it's, it, you know, most of the problems that we have economically could be laid at the feet of the regulatory regime that we have both in Congress and certainly with the Federal Reserve. I did want to circle back. I think it's helpful to note that this isn't just SVB. And I want to ask, what are your thoughts on what's going on with Credit Suisse? They were needing to borrow money from the Swiss National Bank to cover their deposit returns. And as of the last week, it seems like now, what is it, UBS is buying them and yeah. there's a whole Yeah, I'm deal glad you asked and- about that because I think, you know, first of all, it points out that this is a worldwide phenomenon. We had lots of central banks. And again, if I didn't make it clear, I'm against central banking. <laughs> They're not asking me, but but we had lots of central banks throughout the world who were who were doing the same kinds of things, keeping interest rates low, you know, trying to stimulate their economies, trying to stimulate economic growth. And, and therefore printing money, you know, creating way too much liquidity, way too much, in a sense, free money, um, and then now have created inflation and so are yanking it back the other way. So this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's particularly sad. It's fascinating, but it's also, uh, in my mind, really sad. Uh, you know, the Swiss have always been known for a long time, um, aside from being precision watchmakers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... You know, I'm, I'm a fan of precision Swiss watches, but they've also been known as great bankers. And Credit yeah. Suisse has a long storied history uh, of being a really good bank. Um, the Swiss have been, you know, Switzerland has been known as the banker to the world, oftentimes uh, rich people, big companies, but really built a fantastic reputation of having good judgment, of having institutional discretion about deciding where to uh, invest or loan money. And and sort of like a dull reliability as well, you know that 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 you could count on the Swiss. The Swiss were good bankers, and yeah. you could count on them. You just knew that. Okay. Um, and now that's changing, and I I say it's partly because of this whole this whole. I mean, it, this their reputation has been kind of eroding for the last decade or so. You know, they got involved in some scandals. They were lending money to I think some drug dealers and some some businesses that were less than uh, stellar. Um, they got entangled in a whole corruption case in Mozambique and Africa. So they, they, their reputation was beginning to be eroded. Uh, and then recently, I mean, just very recently, the U.S. Uh, Securities and Exchange Commission started auditing some of their books. And this was occurring right when the whole SBV thing or SVB thing was happening. It's interesting because the Saudi, the Saudi uh, National Bank um, was the number one investor in Credit Suisse. And just as they were needing more liquidity because of the same things that was happening in Silicon Valley, yeah. um, the Saudis said, no, <laughs> we're not investing yeah. anymore. So they, they couldn't increase their capital. And that, that sort of accelerated things. And that, that's what happens. It, it sort of happens like a little wildfire. You know, Once the cat's out of the bag, people get nervous. And so I want to get my money out of there. And that happened to, Chris, uh, to Credit Suisse. It's really unfortunate because they were going to the Swiss government they were trying to make a deal there that didn't work out and then UBS made it you know what looks like a pretty good deal for UBS they paid less than half of the previous market value yeah 
but they also wiped out a number of bondholders. Um, so there are still yeah. stock investors in Credit Suisse who have some semblance of capital, even though, like I said, less than half, but yeah. they've got something there. Yeah. Whereas bondholders were totally wiped out. And, and that's, that's uh, really dangerous when you say, well, the traditional risk level of contractual risk that you have as a bondholder, we can just now discretionary-wise say, oh, you're out. Um, I think the rule of law is suffering in how this ba- this whole banking crisis is going down right now. And Credit Suisse is an example of that. So what does that mean for our listeners who are thinking, okay, well, does that mean nowhere safe anymore? I mean, it, when you say, okay, the most stable banking system in the whole globe is now starting to unravel, that sounds to me like, oh gosh, people who are who've been hiding their money under their pillow and We've all been kind of laughing at over the years. Maybe they were right. Were they right this whole time? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think you should go that direction. I don't think a person should say, you know, let's go back and have no, uh, no banking and go to a barter system. No, people shouldn't. Uh, I mean, they should be very wary of the system and they should ask questions and they should learn more about it. I don't think they should panic. I don't think the whole banking system is going to collapse. I do think that we have created a monstrosity of debt. Um, of yeah. of too much money, too much free money, or too much low-cost money, whatever you want to call it. Our printing presses, both in the U.S. and around the world, have been on overdrive. And that is that causes problems. And those problems are, we're going to, you know, the, the, the chickens are coming home to roost, to use an, an analogy that might hit home with you. Yeah. Um, and it's going to create problems and, and dislocations in lots of different industries. And so, first of all, it's really important for someone to, to understand the cause and effect there and to be diversified and to have, to have counsel, uh, have good advisors. And, you know, we'll do a plug for ourselves. We feel like we understand at least a lot of how this works. Um, the risks that are involved. Um, have an advisor who's, who can explain it to your satisfaction and to protect you as best they can. Um, there will be opportunities. Whenever you have dislocations like this, you also have great opportunity in terms of investing. Now, again, it depends on the risk level that a person has, but I wouldn't say someone should panic. They should understand the risk that they have with their bank and the rest of their portfolio, and again, make sure that they're matching up their own duration risk, their own timelines. I mean, this is, again, financial planning 101. Reevaluate their actual needs versus wants, you know, their budget, their, their cash flow needs. And uh, certainly a, a, a good solid plan can be built around that. So what if I am a SVB customer? I'm, I mean, I'm not, but so I'm, I'm just in luck getting my money out then? That's what it seems like right now. Now, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Um, but it looks like that even the uninsured depositors were, were allowed to be able to make withdrawals. Maybe they have some kind of timing in terms of how much and how fast they can get out their deposits. Uh, but they're trying to calm things down. The, the FDIC and the Treasury Department and the government and Federal Reserve are all trying to calm things down there and say, wait, wait, it's okay. This was unique. It's interesting. They're, they're basically saying, you know those uh, government securities that you were required to invest in that have dropped in value yeah. will allow you, I mean, they're basically bending their own rules because of this, yeah. will allow you now to uh, count those as full value. Because we know that if you hold them to maturity, 
that they will they'll come back. They'll they'll actually be worth what you put into them. And so we'll allow you to count that that way. And and that's what partly happens. The concept of mark to market is is fascinating in this context. Um, you know, does an asset should an asset be counted on anyone's books, let alone a bank, um, for what they think it's worth or what it really could be bought or sold sold for to today? Well, so does that mean if I if I go to the government, well, if I happen to be a large bank and I said, hey, you know what, U.S. government, I need to sell these. Can I have my full money back? They're just going to turn around and say, oh, you know, we're, we're not going to deal with the economics and how a real market works. I'll give you I'll give you a little step up here. That, that's, that's what, what that's what it looks like is happening. And, and I call that moral hazard. And you might want to ask me, what do I mean by moral <laughs> hazard? Uh, what do you mean by moral hazard? Well, um, it's it's creating uh, these these conflicts and choices that d- shouldn't have to be there. I mean, yeah. one of the biggest moral hazards, and this is maybe too uh, broad and philosophical, but I think it's crucial for people to realize. I mean, sometimes w- people worry about, well, is is the West or is America declining? Well, it is if it doesn't hold on to its real roots, and by that I mean. I mean, we're now undermining what is truly our so, so-called specialty. I mean, our comparative advantage, the U.S. in particular, but the Western world is what? It's the rule of law. It's, it's predictability. Yeah. The reason why we have such prosperity is because you have innovation. And innovation happens from the private sector where people can say, I can take a risk and be able to reap what I sow. If I fail, okay, I fail and I go bankrupt and I start over again. Or if I succeed, I get to keep my rewards. I get to actually keep the property that I produce. But that rule, that, that basic predictability of rules that says, no, we're going to operate based upon the rule of law versus saying, you know what? Um, we had this FDIC rule of 250000 but we're going to bend that because we don't want this person over here to, to fail. Or we're going to subsidize this industry over here Whenever you have that, you have an erosion of people's confidence about the future. And that ultimately is eroding our comparative advantage, that rule of law and the sacrosanct property rights that go along with that. And that means we will decline if if we aren't careful about that whole issue of... And and we've seen it in, in politics across the board for the last, I don't know, decade. I mean, pick your president and their scandals and the, the things that the other party's trying to hang them on. We've seen lots of examples of the rule of law being eroded, and I think that's the biggest danger uh, for the future and for anyone who's an investor. Okay. So I've heard these rumors of the government trying to utilize insurance assets to cover non-insured return deposits, so kind of like what we were just talking about. Um, But I've heard that there's a potential rollback of Dodd-Frank. What does that mean, and what do you feel about it? Well, that's a whole other rabbit hole. And Dodd-Frank came about, and I think that that was very misguided legislation. It came about for the same reasons. It came about in the last financial crisis when we had the housing problems and the subprime mortgages and so forth. And they were basically trying to impose safety, trying to say, okay, we're going to force you to abide by these rules, even though you as a bank or a corporation aren't necessarily, not necessarily violating someone else's rights, we're going to put extra special regulations on you because we want there to be more safety and less volatility. And every time they do that, they add compounding regulations. 
they take away the price signals. They take away the real market price signals of what people value and don't value. And I, I think you know they, they're having to undo Dodd-Frank's, not officially yet, but they're having to do it because they realize that's part of the problem. And this is what happens. They put in a rule or a regulation and say, this is what we're going to enforce. You know, okay. We're going to enforce 250000 in in FDIC rules. Or we're going to say you have to have this much in reserve requirements. And then they realize that interferes with someone's judgment about the future. And if, uh, if enough people, if it's interfering in, or distorting prices in a certain market, they realize, oh, we screwed up. That's causing inflation now. Or that's causing you know this, uh, this industry to suffer. Well, we better make it up by having another regulation. <laughs> and it compounds upon it. Instead of saying, look, we're going to get out of the business of picking winners and losers, because that's basically what they're doing oftentimes. We're just going to let their, you know, if you're violating someone's rights, yeah. we're going to prosecute you. But otherwise, we're going to let the let the free market roll. That's what we need to get back to. Again, I'm kind of preaching here, but <laughs> that's what we need to get back to. And and I do think they should t- entirely undo Dodd-Frank's. I think they should entirely undo the Consumer Protection Finance Board. Well, that- so for those of us who aren't as historically adept as you, what I mean, what even was Dodd-Frank? What does that mean? Well, it was a whole series of regulations about the financial industry. And I, I can't go into it in a lot of detail, but it was basically, like I said, they were trying to regulate corporations and banks in terms of safety for the future. They were trying to say, here's one of the major provisions, and, and I, you've heard me talk about this one before, but one of the major provisions, and this is maybe touches on the tax tips things. <laughs> Most of our clients um, get frustrated about not getting their 1099 sooner in the year. Because it used to be, okay, by January 30th, I got my 1099. I can do my taxes before April 15th. Yeah. Now they're waiting on 1099s and corrected 1099s. and Revised and, 1099s yeah. and, and final copy. And, and they don't realize <laughs> that it was Dodd-Frank and other legislation that basically said, we're going to try to hold these fat cat CEOs more accountable for what's going on in their business. So they made it, they basically took away the corporate liability protection that companies would have and said, you, Mr. CEO, or you, Mr. Board of Directors, you guys are now going to be personally liable for okay. mistakes that are made in your company. And so what does that mean? Well, those companies are going to say, well, if I'm a CEO and I'm liable now for what happens that yeah. gets reported to a 1099, I'm going to say, let's slow down and make sure we're, <laughs> we can't yeah. be hung, right? Yeah, let's double check on, this. On one hand, times. you might say they're going to be more diligent and protective and say, okay, we're going to be a little more conservative. And that definitely is. They're being more conservative. They're not actually innovating. They're not actually taking risks. Dodd-Frank's reduce the risk-taking ability and innovation that's going on in the economy. But it also made uh, boards of directors, high uh, C-suite level executives say, we're not putting out this report if it has anything that's going to hang me. Yeah. So it's 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 reducing the again the risk taking innovation that's going on in our economy and therefore the growth in the economy. Um, there's all kinds of provisions that are that are part of that Dodd Frank bill that basically slow down the ability for companies to adapt, make decisions, use their judgment to to make the best decisions possible. It's interfering in the marketplace and it should be completely repealed. I know I'm <laughs> you're getting me on a roll. Here. Sorry, got you on a got you on a train there. Um, well, so what does this all mean for investors? Are we transitioning our outlook on financials? I know we've kind of talked about, hey, maybe financials are good in a rising interest rate environment because obviously banks and financial institutions can take advantage of that opportunity. Um, but now on the flip side, we're going, well, maybe banks are kind of risky. So what is our 
That's what a really good question. You know, I, uh, before this whole thing happened, I was getting more enthusiastic about investing in financials in the banking sector. And part of it's because they did adapt. I mean, uh, there are certain lessons that were learned in the last financial crisis. And by force and by experience, lots of bankers cleaned up their balance sheets. They're healthier than they have been before. And so they looked attractive. They weren't, they weren't priced very expensive. I mean, if you look at lots of uh, parts of our economy, people sort of fight the old war. And, you know, people remember, oh, banking was bad in, in 2008 and 2009. So the valuations of banks have been slipping, slipping while technology companies have been just expanding. So both from a valuation standpoint and a uh, health standpoint, I, I was thinking that banks and, and the financial sector looked a lot better as an investment opportunity. I still think that's mostly true. But again, it depends on uh, the regulatory environment and, and what happens in terms of that uncertainty. Right now, we're not either increasing nor decreasing our exposure to the financial sector. I think it's still, you know, the financial sector is the lifeblood. Like it or not, it's the lifeblood of American capitalism. Um, and if we expect to have a robust economy, we've got to have a, a robust financial sector. And it, certainly it's having challenges right now. And we're going to watch it closely. We're definitely uh, wary of position sizes, you know, how much exposure we have to certain areas. But uh, we're definitely still investors in the financial sector. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners are getting out of this episode? You know, I think the biggest thing is that it, it's obvious to me that the Federal Reserve, I've been saying this for decades, but it's obvious to me that they're losing credibility and that that's good and bad. I mean, it's bad if we have people panic and really want rapid change. That's one of the problems that we're seeing right now is the Federal Reserve reverse course so dramatically. Their interest rates just took off uh, and, and that's hard for people to adapt to quickly. Um, but they've lost credibility. I mean, they had some really absolutely uncalled for money printing during COVID, you know, during the crises that we've experienced over the last several, the last couple of decades. And that's got too much liquidity, too much money in the system. That's why we're experiencing the inflation. It was a massive mistake for them to be calling inflation transitory. I mean, that's, I think they're admitting that now. So again, the Federal Reserve has lost credibility. Uh, and the biggest, potentially the biggest challenge of all right now will be that we have been the beneficiary of our our rule of law system allowing us to have the the uh, reserve currency of the world. The dollar has been really the reserve currency of the world, and that is being eroded right now. And certainly there are other countries who are much less willing to borrow or to lend us money um, to buy our, our treasury bonds. You know, China, Japan, the Saudis, uh, they used to be big buyers uh, of treasury debt, uh, lending money to the U.S., uh, and that is slowing down dramatically, and that could be could be more pain for the American economy. Again, I, my biggest point to reinforce the fact that we need to have, you know, a rule of law and and stand for the Constitution, and and that we should have some predictability in our markets, and and uh, that reinforce property rights and freedom, and hopefully people will advocate for that on a, on a political and, and cultural level. We hope you found this podcast episode educational and informative. Hopefully you learned a little bit more about 
the current banking industry and how politics play a role in that. If you found this episode exciting, fun, informative, useful, I hope you will follow, like, subscribe, give us five stars, all of the above on our podcast platform as well as on our social platforms. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, in addition to our podcast. So all of those platforms are saved in one word as Altius Financial. That's A-L-T-I-U-S Financial. If you guys have any questions about our current podcast, our future podcasts, any questions about your financial situation, please feel free to reach out to us at taylor at altiusfinancial.com or michael at altiusfinancial.com. Hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Thank you.